Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. I have the great privilege and honor of kicking off this series today, of which I'm deeply thrilled. Um, I will forewarn you, or maybe it's not a forewarning, maybe it's just a moment of notion or importance, um, or notation, I should say, is that uh, this message today, um, it may not flow like a, um, a message that historically I have preached, in the sense that uh, it's going to come across as being clearly expository from one passage of Scripture, but I want you to kind of, if, if, if you can do this, experience this as a dialogue today. This is a message that I have been uh, very anxious to preach for several months now, as God has been opening up new doors of of just, I think, wisdom in my own life through personal experience, but also as I've been engaging and pastoring this community. And so I want you to hear a pastor's heart today to share with you what I am calling a diagnosis, if you will, of the modern church, where we find ourselves in today, that we, like Genesis says, could be the sons of Issachar who knew what God was doing, that we had discernment on what God is doing in this hour. Just a couple of texts this morning. Psalm 14. Psalm 14, just one line. And Acts 17. We'll look at several verses of Scripture. Psalm 14. I want to welcome those that are streaming live. Uh, we pray God speaks to you right where you're at today. Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool has said in his heart, there is No God. I think the NRSV says, The fools say in their hearts, there is no God. This is the notion of the foolishness of denying that God exists. And then go with me to Acts 17. This is the story of Paul at Mars Hill. He is at the Areopagus, which is the, the hill right across from the Parthenon which is in that day and age the center of really Roman culture there in Athens. And again, this is a very familiar passage, but read with me in Acts 17. I'm going to begin reading in verse 22. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and he said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious, notice this, how extremely religious you are in every way. Now I want you to notice that. I want you to notice how Paul is in Athens, and the Bible says that he is reading the landscape. He's interpreting what he sees. There is this very striking passage in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus rebukes the crowds, and he says, you are hypocrites because you can read the weather. You know what it's going to do tomorrow based upon the color of the sky today. You can predict the weather, but you cannot predict or read your times. Now, I find it striking that Jesus, our Lord, would say to those people, he calls them hypocrites for that. They have skills of reading the weather, but they can't read what's happening in their world. Well, you see, Paul here is doing the exact opposite. He's reading what's happening in their world. He's reading the culture around them. He has hashtag wisdom. He's he's able to discern rightly what's happening in the culture that he's a part of. He's reading and interpreting the signs, and he says, "Hey, hey, hey, Athenians, I see you are very, very religious people. 
And I see this altar you built, but it says to an unknown God, and what you worship is unknown, I want to proclaim to you who, who and what his name really is. He goes on and says, For as I went through the city, looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. What does he proclaim? He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath And all things. And he continues. Now here, church, listen, is where the diagnosis begins. And I want you to be very clear. And I want to be very clear with you. I want to make sure you understand that that I am not saying this is a true read of everyone in our community at DP. But I think that what I'm going to share today is a read of a lot of communities like Dwelling Place. And a lot of communities that I have served or have the opportunity to serve as a pastor over the last decade plus of my life. And it may or may not be true for some of us here too, but just allow it to kind of hit where it hits. You, you sometimes will hear people talk about Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart there is no God in terms of practical atheism. So there is some truth to that. It is one thing to say with your mouth there is no God. Uh, and it's another thing to say with your heart there is no God. In other words... I've heard sermons of how you can be explicitly a believer, but implicitly a non-believer. In other words, you can say with your mouth one thing, and yet your life and heart be very far from what your mouth is confessing. Now, the Scripture bears witness to this in many ways. We can talk about this. I'm sure I've preached this passage in this way a time or two. But listen, so Christians, for this part of the understanding of the text, Christianity is, is practically atheistic. We make a confession of a living God. but we go about and live our life in ways that don't bear witness to the confession we are making. But listen, I don't think that's quite our problem in 21st century America. I, I don't think right now in this church, and I, don't, I know in this church, and I don't think in the churches that I serve, the friends I have, I don't think the problem is practical atheism. I don't think the problem is people don't love God enough. I think the problem is trickier than that. And I think the problem is much danger, more dangerous than that. It's not the problem of practical atheism, but it's the problem of a distorted view of God. God. It's not that people don't believe there's a God. It's a distorted view of who that God is. If I could say it this way, it's a corrupted sense of what God is and what God is like. I think we suffer much less from not really believing in God and much more in believing in God in ways that are untrue to God, ways that are untrue to His nature. I don't see us as not being sincere But listen, as in sincerely believing things about God that are not true. Now listen, that is a different diagnosis. A different diagnosis. Uh, Let me me put it to you this way. Um, John Wesley, one of my heroes in the Christian faith. John Wesley, he was the most influential figure for the Spirit-filled movement, especially in faith traditions that are shaped by the holiness context, like much of the background of people in this church. John Wesley. John Wesley had a context called a national church. It was called the Anglican Church. John Wesley had one desire. He was trying to renew a nominal Christianity. A Christianity where people were Christian by identity of national identity only. So that is to say you were born in England, so you were a Christian. 
So now he's trying to renew a church that is nominally Christian because they just happen to be born in England. They're a Christian. Being a Christian was part of national identity. And that creates nominal Christians who are in name only. And sometimes I hear people in America today talk in the church as if that's our problem. That people claim to be Christians who are not. But that's not true for our brand of Christianity. For spirit-filled believers, it's not true in our nation and it's not true in the nations of the world. I think it's far trickier than that. We are very sincere. I think people aren't just Christians in name only, but it's not enough to be sincere when the vision of God is distorted. It doesn't matter how sincere we are if our vision of who God is is wrong. When our representation of God to others is in some way distorted, it doesn't matter if we're sincere or not. Now, like any sickness, and please hear me, I want to insist today that this is a disease. So I want you to see this as a disease. This is a sickness, okay? As a sickness, I don't think this is about willful disobedience. Now, of course, there are people out there in our churches that don't love God, don't come to church because they love God, don't love other people, and they're difficult to deal with. Okay, they're hard to deal with. We as pastors, they're hard people to deal with. But that's not most people. Most people are very sincere. Most people I encounter want to love God. They want to be faithful Christians. So it's not a matter of bad will. The problem is a disease that comes to the people we love and those who want to be loving to other people. And that's the thing about disease. That's the thing about sickness. You can have someone who is loving and is lovable, but the sickness they have inhibits the life they have with you. And I'm sure some of us in this room know what that's like. Someone you live and you love close to, that you love dearly, but there are limits limits in the way that you can be together physically. There are limits in the way that you can be together emotionally. There are limits in the things that you can do together as a couple and share to life together because of sickness. This is the misconception about God. What we say in our hearts about God that are not true is not born out of a lack of faith. It's not born out of a lack of sincerity. It's not born out of a lack of goodwill. It's a sickness we have inherited and yet we still have to deal with it. So listen, follow me, follow me. Think about that man in Acts 3. I think about it all the time. Peter and John are on the way to the temple to pray at the hour of noon, at the time of prayer. And there's a man who has been crippled from birth, from birth. It's not his fault. He was crippled from birth at the gate called Beautiful. He was crippled, and yet at this moment, he's called to act. Stand, Peter says. What I give to you, I give to you in the name of Jesus. Stand. And what is not his fault becomes his responsibility in that moment. Did you see that? It's not his fault. He did it. He's no shame here, no condemnation. There's no beating anybody up. There's no tearing anybody down. He's not, he's not to blame for what is wrong with him. Yet in the moment of the prophetic word, he is made responsible by the call to stand. What I'm trying to tell us is that I'm not faulting anyone today. I'm not faulting myself. I'm not faulting us as a church. I'm not calling anyone out. I'm not slamming anyone. I'm not shaming anyone. We are like the man at the gate called beautiful. We were dropped as babies. We are congenitively malformed and it's not our fault. There's no condemnation. There's no shame. But when the word of the Lord speaks to us, we become responsible for what is not our fault. So everything I say today, you've got to hear me. You need to hear it that way. You have to hear it that way or else you're going to feel the condemnation. No, no, no. There's no condemnation. There's no blame. There's no condemnation. This is not the skies falling. This is not, oh, woe is me. The world is at the end of times. No, it is. We are broken in ways we have to take responsibility for. And we are broken specifically at this point, the way in which we see God. We're broken in the way we see God. 
What we say in our hearts is that there is no God. But the God is, is, is not that there is no God, but the God we envision in our hearts is not the God that is. Or to go to Acts 17, I think I've told you this before, but if you look at this passage in Acts 17, we are the exact reverse situation of Paul. Follow this. Paul goes into Athens. It's a pagan city that has not yet heard the gospel. This is what we call a pre-Christian nation, pre-Christian context. He goes in and he says, you've already sensed around in the darkness an unknown God. I know you've already hit on him because you're worshiping an unknown God. Now I'm going to identify him for you. You don't know his name. I'm going to tell you his name and what he's like. But we in America are in the exact opposite situation. We're not in a pre-Christian nation. Think about this. We live in a post-Christian nation in which everyone knows the name of God, but no one knows anything about his character. So we're in the exact opposite of Athens. They've all heard the name of Jesus, but they don't know what that means because they've heard the name Jesus from a thousand different Christians who believe a thousand different things. So we are not in a pre-Christian context. We are in a post-Christian context where we have to get to a place. I mean, this is what Paul says. He says, you already worship him. I see the altar and the inscription to an unknown God. I'm going to identify him for you, Athenians, but that's not where we are today. We are in a place where everyone in America knows the name of Jesus. We just don't know what we mean when we say Jesus is God. We know who he is. His name's Jesus. We just don't know what he's like. We don't know what he does. We don't know what he's up to, and that is a very different situation to be in than Acts 17. And what it does is it requires an entirely different set of, uh, of, 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 of gifts and sensibilities as believers. Now, I'm afraid in some ways our churches are still trying to speak to our culture in America as if it's a culture that hasn't yet heard the gospel, but that's not the world we live in. The Western world is not that world. We don't live in a world where people need to hear about Jesus. They need to know who you mean when you say Jesus. They need to know what you mean, who you mean. What is that person named Jesus? They've heard Jesus' name, but they've heard it from so many different people in so many different contexts that it doesn't mean anything in America when you say you're a Christian anymore. Listen, listen, I don't know if that realization has caught up to us yet. When you say you're a Christian, that does not mean anything anymore. That is not an identifier of anything anymore. It's totally meaningless. When you say you're a Christian, that has and bears no meaning on the Western mind anymore because there's so many different types of Christians who understand and believe different kinds of things. So it's meaningless to say that. But I don't know if that realization's caught up with us. Now, when Paul stands in Athens and says, I'm a Christian, they say, tell us what you mean. Well, what do you mean by that? Now, we think we know what we mean now, but we don't. We no longer know what it means. Listen, when you say I'm a Christian... You don't know if the people in your workplace hear that as good or hear that as bad. You don't know. You don't know how they respond to that. You don't know what they're actually listening to. So we have to, in this way, adjust our context today. Now, so just to be clear, way of recap. Our problem is not a nominal faith. Our problem is not an immature faith. Our problem is not a lack of sincerity in our faith. It's not a lackadaisical faith. It's not a lukewarm faith. Our problem is a distorted vision of God. Our problem is a malformed understanding and perception of who God really is. We don't see God clearly. And because we don't see God clearly, we can't represent God clearly. We can't speak clearly about God. I said it last week. If the God I know isn't the God he is, then the God I make known won't be the God he wants to be known as. So we misrepresent God because we have not understood his character. Now, we are theologically malformed. And because of that, we lack discernment. 
Because everything else, listen to this, you've got to understand, when there is a distorted vision of God, there is a, everything else is distorted in our lives too. When God's character is not clear, the character of everything else remains in the dark. We're not unable to see. So we can't read what's happening in our country. Just click on Facebook and see if people really can understand what's happening in our country. We can't understand what's happening in our country. We can't happen, understand what's happening in our cities. We can't understand what's happening in our lives because we can only see those things in the light of the character of God. So we are all distorted in our perception because we're distorted in our view of the holy. So again, again and again and again and again, listen to me, the work of the church, the fundamental work of the church today is to tune us into who God is. This is what God is like. This is the things God does. These are how God, these are the ways God acts in our world. And in light of that revelation, we now can see what it means to live with these people here now. We see what it means to address the problem with refugees. We see what it means to address Address the issues that are taking place economically or politically. See, we can assess what's happening on the macro and the micro scale of our life, but only in the light of the character of God revealed in Jesus Christ. This is why, listen to me, church, the fundamental work of the church today is to turn our attention to the character of God. To turn our attention to God's character. And here's where my own tribe... My own tribe is the Spirit-filled tribe, the Pentecostal tribe. Pentecostal just means we believe in the second subsequent work of the Spirit called Spirit Baptism with the evidence of spiritual language and spiritual gifts, Spirit-filled people. My Pentecostal tribe has failed us. Previous generations have failed us, folks. I'm, I'm inserting in this message today about 15 years of, of viewing and perceiving and engaging a movement very clearly, not just in this North America context, but the greater context. We in past generations became, at some point, we became less concerned about the character of God than we were about experiencing the presence of God. We wanted to experience the presence of God, which is awesome, which is beautiful, as long as you know the character of the God you're experiencing. But when you go on experiencing and seeking the experience and you forget the character, listen to me. When you do that, you will become malformed. This sticks with me. I told you this last week, but it sticks with me. I'll never forget this. When, when I was reading about David, 1 Kings chapter 2, David, the end of his life, David, the man after God's own heart. We know him. And he's the worshiper. He worshiped in ways that were magnificent, remarkable. And at the end of his life, he's the guy who writes all the Psalms, the worshiper, and when he dies, 1 Kings chapter 2, you know what he's doing? He calls his son Solomon into the room. He says, Solomon, listen, I promised to God not to avenge myself, but I got... Beef with this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy. And he says, I'm not going to avenge. I'm about to die. But before you die, Solomon, don't let their gray hair go down into the grave without blood. In other words, kill them. And when I read that, the Lord spoke to me as clear as day and said, worship will not transform your character if you don't see mine first, Craig. I'll never forget that. This is David. Worship God in remarkable ways. We're singing his songs millennia later out of the Psalms. But yet he did not worship in a way that made him like Jesus. When Stephen's being stoned in the New Testament, Acts 7, the stones are hitting him. And he doesn't say, get revenge on them like David. What does he say? Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. Listen, worship that is not clear about the character of God will just make us passionate people. And passionate people are at the mercy of their own desires. Listen, listen, you've got to understand this. Hear my heart. What we see with David over and over and over in his life is that he's passionate, but he's also very foolish. 
He's very foolish. He's passionate, passionate, and passionately running against the will of God in his life. And it causes trouble for everybody else around him. And so in our churches, we sometimes talk as if passion by itself is a good thing. Not realizing that when you teach people to be passionate and don't give them the wisdom to see clearly the character and wisdom of God, you are putting them at the mercy of their own desires. So let me see. So hear what I say and don't hear what I don't say. Okay? Hear what I'm saying and don't hear what I'm not saying. At some point, it will destroy them. At some point, they will mistake their own heart for the voice of the Lord and they will make a foolish decision that will wreck the rest of their life. And I've seen it person after person after person. And it comes from us telling them that passion by itself is a good thing. So let me say this. I want you to hear. Hear what I mean. Passion for God by itself is not a good thing. Unless you see the character of the God you are passionate for, you will be led into some form of idolatry. That's why he said, Proverbs 19.1, passion without or zeal without knowledge is unprofitable. Passion without wisdom is dangerous. Passion by itself only releases your passions. It doesn't sanctify your passions. You know what can only sanctify your passions and sanctify your desires? It's getting a clear vision of the character of God, not just experiencing the presence of God. So experiencing God's presence doesn't sanctify my desires. It's knowing God's character that sanctifies my desires. It's no, there are lots and lots of people who like the feeling of being in the presence of God, but they have no interest in his character. And we as praise and worship people, we as Pentecostal people, we need to take that seriously. Because listen, listen, worship people, we could be doing something that we are so sure is right and good that's actually shaping people in ways that are not good. We're stirring up desire in people. It's not an accident that the Corinthian church was the church that had all spiritual gifts yet gross sexual immorality. Look, 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 look. It's no coincidence that the most spiritually gifted church is the most sexually immoral church. Why? Why? Because the way they're talking about spiritual gifts is not rooted in the character of God. It's rooted in selfish desires. And listen, a selfish spirituality is always going to be tied up with a selfish sexuality. This is why when people get into ministry for their own deal, you see them drop one after the other because of what type of sin? Sexual sin. Same desires. Read the Song of Songs. Your desire for God is so wrapped up in your desire for sex with a mate. That's what the whole book's about. Your sexual desire for intimacy and fellowship is just like your desire for God. That's what the whole book of Song of Songs is about. They're totally wrapped up in one another. And if your, God, if your, if your desire for God is illicit, even if you name the right name, if you are wildly living for God from your own passions, then you will wildly live from your own passions with other people. And what makes this disease, that's what makes this disease so hard is because the things that seem harmless and good can actually be subverting the work of God in our life. Who would ever think it would be wrong to get people excited for God? I was the weird youth pastor telling that to other youth pastors. That's not what our desire, our desire is not to get young people just excited. That seems so counterintuitive, but listen, if they are not seeing the character of God, it is in fact subverting God's work in them. It's corrupting them. So, so let, me, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me bring this in. Theology in the church then has two functions. Can I give you those two functions? Number one, here's the purpose of theology in the church. It's to, first of all, the function of maintaining the church's or the faithfulness of the church's speech. What do you mean? We do theology in the church. That is that when we preach... 
We do theology so that when we preach and when we testify and we sing, we don't misrepresent God. And in this way, theology is useful. So theology has a purpose to come into the church to say, hey, let's take a step back and ask ourselves, is what we're preaching really faithful? Theology says, is what we're singing on Sunday mornings really faithful? Theology says, is what we're doing in outreach faithful to God? Think of a mechanic. In some ways, the theology is like taking the car in for a tune-up. You're trying to make sure the songs we sing, the sermons we preach, the outreach we do, is it faithful or not? So there is a place in theology where theology is concerned about maintaining the faithfulness of our speech. Is it right to say this? Is it wrong to say this? There must be times in the life of the church where we step back and say, everybody in Christianity America is saying this right now, but is it faithful to say that? That's why I tell people all the time, get rid of Christian cliches out of your language. You know why I say no Christian cliches? Because Christian cliches are are phrases that speak us and we don't speak them. What do you mean, Craig? They stand for something and we don't quite judge them because they're Christian cliches. We never judge them. We never take them into reality to see if they're real. Let me just give you an example of this, okay, lest you miss me. Think of the Christian uh, cliche. God is good all the time and all the time. Now, in some ways, that's a Christian cliche. That In some ways, that's true. But there's also ways in which that's not true. What do you mean? Well, think about this. I think often what people mean when they say God is good, they are saying things are going my way. Life is going my way. And then they answer all the time. Listen, when we say God is good and all the time, God is good, God is good all the time, what we are saying or not saying is my life is just what I want it to be. God is good all the time is a confession of faith, not a description of my experiences. So look, when I say God is good, and I don't mean everything in my life is good, I mean in spite of everything in my life, God is good. See, when I say God is good all the time, it's a protest, not a description. You see that? So there's nothing wrong with saying God is good all the time, and all the time God is good, if you know what you mean when you say that. I got so many of these. You click on Facebook, somebody says, oh, we are pregnant, we are just so blessed. Well, everybody else who reads that who can't get pregnant sees that they are not blessed. So it's, I'm only blessed when life gets me what I want life to give me. So we say things that, again, we have to be careful how they're actually heard by other people. It's not what's actually in our heart, it's actually what people are hearing. Now think about that. There's no problem at all with saying God is good if we know what God is good means. But in most of our churches, we never stop to ask, what are people hearing when we say this? Lots of people do mean God is good in spite of everything going on in my life, but there are a lot of young Christians who hear God is good, and you know what that means? They hear nothing should be going wrong in my life if I'm living faithfully to God. That's what they hear. That's what they hear. That's what we're accountable for. We're accountable for those words. That's what theology does. It keeps our speech faithful. We say, wait a minute, we keep saying this, but is what we're saying faithful? What do people hear? Not what do I mean, because they can't read your heart. You have to think what they are thinking when they hear you say God is good. Let me, let me give you, this is, this is my big pet peeve, and this is all, while I'm getting this, this message this week, I click on you know, social media that I'm updating, and I, it's like every three posts I hear this again. It's like, I mean, it's like confirmation after confirmation. In my tribe all the time, we talk about God showing up. God showed up today. Woo! This conference, God showed up. Okay? I know what we mean. We're trying to describe an experience of God that is unusual. 
I, I know what we mean. I think I know what we mean. We're trying to, there's, there's a difference in the omnipresence of God and the clear manifestation of the glory and presence of God. There's clear in scripture. I think I know what we mean, but what people hear is most of the time, God doesn't show up. Most of the time, he's not there, but he was there today. God showed up this Sunday and we get together and we're like the prophets of Baal and we hope lightning will strike our, our sacrifice at some time. So we get together and we sing and we testify and we preach and every once in a while, God actually does show up. And we're excited about it. Now, I know that's not what people want to say when they say it. People want to say God showed up in a particular way, but that's not what we are saying. And certainly not what people hear. We could give so many more examples of this. I could go on and on and on. So theology that way is maintenance. It maintains our faithful speech. And we as preachers, we, 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 this is one of the reasons I preach from manuscript because I don't betray myself with my words. And the more I get away from manuscript, the more I can say things that are not really faithful. That are not really faithful. And we don't represent God rightly. Now, the second function of theology is this. Not to maintain the faithfulness of the church's speech, but it's clearly, it's, I think it's deeper and it's more foundational. Theology is contemplation of the beauty of God. And for this reason, it has no use. It's only for enjoyment. Theology is contemplation of God's beauty. Now, I'm not sure how this will hit you. Now, hang with me. Y'all, are y'all with me? Okay, I promise it's going to get better, okay? I don't know how this will hit you right now, but let it hit you, and then we'll keep going. I promise you. Just follow with me, okay? So in this way, theology is not useful for our context. In my work as a pastor, I want to be honest with you. When I'm, I, as a pastor in a church and a pastor who speaks in different contexts, I can tell you that whenever I'm speaking, there is a pressure in modern-day America to say something that is practical, so people come to church expecting to get advice about how to live their lives. And when you talk about God's character and not how we should live, people don't know what to do. When you talk about the character of the Almighty and not what they should do, they, they don't know what to do with that. Uh, let me give you an example of this. I have a close friend who was speaking at a Pentecostal church, a, a rural church. It's an old church, about 90 years old. And the pastor was just about to retire. He was in his 80s. And he preached a sermon on the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Just preached on, on the Trinity. Not the Trinity and your marriage. Not the Trinity and raising your children. Not the Trinity and fundraising for the new building. Not the Trinity and whatever, raising your kids right. Just the Trinity. And people were like, as you imagine, okay, why does that matter? That's what they're saying. That, that's what he's feeling in the room. Okay, you're preaching on the Trinity. Why does that matter? Because there is this lurking in us, this so What? So what? What does it matter for us? You say God is Trinity? What does that matter? How does that matter to me? And as pastors, the pressure we feel to make sure people get it, they get the so what? That's how you get people to buy in. Hey, give your tithes. Why? Because God will bless you. Here's what we have to do as pastors. Hey, hey, why don't you go to church? Come to church. Why? Because that's where you're strengthened. And if you're strengthened, then you can pray well. And if you can pray well, then you'll get an answered prayer. And sometimes you're going to need an answered prayer. So you come to church to make sure you build up all the points you need so that when you need to make a withdrawal on your account of grace, it will be ready and available. So there's a reason for everything we do. But listen, with God, there is no reason. He is God. There is no explanation. There's no reason for God. He's God. So it's not so what? It's God. It's just God. So we speak about God. 
There's no so what. God is God. One of my favorite theologians, Walter Brueggemann, he's a great Old Testament theologian. He, he divides the Ten Commandments into two tables. The first table is the first three commandments. The second table, first table is God's table because it's how we relate to God. The seven, last seven commandments is what we call the people's table because it's how we relate to people. So there's two tables in the Ten, ten Commandments. The first table, which is the first three commandments, here's, what, here's how he summarizes those three commandments. He said it can be summarized in this way. God is not useful. God is not useful. God is faithful, but he's not useful. Idols are useful. Idols are gods you make so you can win the war and call it them. Idols are the gods you make so you can have kids when you want to have kids and not have kids when you don't want to have kids. But God is not at your beck and call. That's not who God is. So God is not useful. He's not useful at all. He's faithful, but he's not useful. So I go back to my story. This pastor was talking about God as Trinity. And it seems bizarre to us because we're not saying why it matters. So after the sermon is over, the pastor's wife comes up to this man. My, my friend. She said, I was raised in a pastor's home for 20 years of my life. I've been married to the pastor of this church for 60 years. My son is a pastor for the last 30 years. And that is the first, today is the first time I've ever heard a sermon on the Trinity. You think, how can that happen? That's the very essence of the God we say we know. How in the world does that happen? When our God doesn't get named in that way, because for us, the doctrine of the Trinity is something reserved for paperwork and the classrooms. It's reserved for teachers and Sunday school teachers. It's not at the heart of our worship. If it was at the heart of our worship, it would be the heart of our songs, heart of our preaching, heart of our witness, heart of our prayer, heart of our outreach, heart of all that we do. It's at the center of what we do. And that, my friends, should sober you to your bones. Sober you. Because that's who our God is. And the fact that we have relegated that to the nerds who like to study, it tells us we are not really tuned into the character of God. We like to experience His presence. But we don't know his character. We want to experience God. I don't care if it's one first person of the Trinity, second person, third, three at one time, one at one time, one second at the other time. I don't care what it, I, I just, I'm experiencing God. And maybe that's good for you. Listen, parents, maybe that's good for you. But what happens for your children or your children's children? What happens for people who are raised in other faith religions? It's not okay for them. Because the vision of the gospel will get distorted more and more and more and more and more. What about your neighbor? What about your... People raised in different faiths. What about your children's children? You might be fine, but the gospel keeps getting transformed. Now, let me tell you what I think most people mean when they say God. We assume we know what we mean when we say God, but what if we didn't? Here's what I think we mean, and I think this is true from, listen, from the time we are four or five all the way to the time we're adults. Listen, I think for most of us, our deepest assumptions about God do not change from when we were little children. I want to say that again. I think... For most of us, our deepest assumptions about God do not change from when we were little children. Now, there are, again, exceptions to that, but most of us, let me explain to you. I think for most people in our world, God is the name of a being or a set of beings who allow to happen everything that happens that we can't explain and makes happen everything that happens that we can't explain. Now, I'm going to unpack this in a more in a moment, but, but follow with me. Most people think of God as a being or a set of beings. Our dear brother Jesse Duplantis, he wrote a book years ago. He claims to go to heaven. He wrote a book called Heaven, Close Encounters of the God Kind. And in this book, he claims to go to heaven. And, 
He's a dear brother. He, go, he's, he, he goes and he sees Abraham and he sees Paul. And, and then he saw Jesus and Jesus is like a 5'11", 6 foot man. Okay? He sees Jesus there and, and, he asked, and, and Jesse asked if Jesus would take him to the throne room. Why? Because he wanted to see the Father. So he takes him into the throne room and he gets in there and he can't see the Father because of the brilliance. All he could see was from the bottom of his robe and his shins, his ankles, and his feet because it was so brilliant. And in that moment, as he looks upon the Father, he asks a question. What question do you think he asked? Where is the Holy Spirit? Where is the Holy Spirit? And the Father said, down there on earth. Down there on earth. So, so watch this. You've got Jesus, who's like a six-foot normal God, us. You've got a 90-foot Father. Then you've got a Holy Spirit who is on earth. Now, Jesse's a dear brother. He's going to heaven. There's no doubt God uses him in his ministry, but that's what we call heresy. That would have gotten you killed in the third century. Why? Because that's not one God. That's three humanoid gods. Oh, that's technical, Craig. That don't matter. No, what if it does matter? What if that distorted view of God bears witness on everything we do? Let me explain. Is that one God or is that three individual gods? What difference does it make? Well, it has everything to do with the character of God. And it may not seem that way, but before I'm done, I, I, I hope it will. The reason Jesse can say that to us is because that seems basically irrelevant to us. We don't pontificate things about the Trinity. That's again for nerds to work through. That's again for theologians to work through. But what if it isn't? What if it bears heart and bears on the very heart of our calling? What if we can't speak clearly about God and the character of God if we misapprehend the very nature of God? So if we imagine God, listen, is a being who does things we can't explain and he allows things to happen that we can't explain, we already have a fundamental problem. And this is exactly how my kids view God. I want to challenge this for a minute. I bet all the kids you've seen, when you were a kid, you believed this. And I bet the kids you know believe this. When my kids first started talking about God, there are two things they say. What, two among the first things. What are the first two things children say? They say, number one, God is up. God is spatially that way. I'm on earth. God's up there. And secondly, God does the stuff we can't explain to them. So God is up, and God does things that we can't explain. I remember Knox was four or five years old. We're walking through the church building that I was pastoring, and the series of why questions came. He's four years old, right? He says, why, Dad, did they build this room like this? And I said, I, the builders built it this way. He said, who did it? I said, it was the, the, the contractor and the builders. He said, why did they do it? I said, because the people who wanted the building built wanted it that way. He says, why did the leaders want it that way? And I said, son, I, I don't know. And as, as we finally hit a wall, listen, watch this. When we hit a wall where I could no longer explain what the answer was, I couldn't find anything to say. You know what, you know what Knox said? He said, God did it. And I didn't think much about it. And then we have a second kid. And Marley's now five years old, and she's running with me last summer, and we're running through the neighborhood. And she said, Dad, did God make this road? And I said, well, no, not exactly, honey. The city has officials that make the roads for us. And she said, what, but, but did God make the trees? I said, well, that's a little bit more direct. Yeah, he, he made the trees and seeds, and they grow. She said, but did God make the rocks? Because they're not living, Dad. But do you see what's happening in that child's mind? Here's what they're doing, and here's what we do from kids. We are pushing back, pushing back, pushing back 
to what can't be explained. And when we can't find an explanation, that's where we find God. So God did it. But when you work that out, and listen, I I will suggest to us, everyone you know, they believe that as a child. God is up, and God does the things we can't explain. And they grow up and have a relationship with God, and that fundamental conviction never changes. And you know it doesn't change because of the way we talk about stuff that happens. When something happens that we think is a miracle, guess who did it? God did it. We feel it can't be explained any other way. God did it. But if I can explain it, look, if Meredith breaks her arm today and she wakes up tomorrow and it is healed, what do we say? God did it. Because we don't know how an arm can heal. But if it heals a year from now, we don't say God did it. We say it was the natural process. And in doing so, we edge God out of most of our worlds and he only does things we can't explain. See, now God is not active every day. Now God is not operating in our lives every day. Now God is not present in our reality every day because he's only in the things that we can't explain. Now this matters in our worship and this matters in the way we view God. That God's not just the one that we can't, does things we can't explain. God actually is the one who does all the things we can't explain. So think about this. Now you have a God who sometimes does stuff, but most of the time lets other things happen. But that's not how the scripture speaks about God. God is not sometimes doing stuff and most of the time not doing stuff. God is always acting. The question is how is God acting? Not if God is acting, but what is God doing in what is happening now? How is God at work in that right now? We have to be discerning. I think one of the greatest deceptions for us in our day and age, and I think demons know this, is that we are mesmerized by the miraculous, the spectacular. The demons know this. Because when the demons know this, when something amazing happens, we validate it. And we trust the source because, hey, after all, it's something we can't explain. And that's how Jesus says in the end, they're going to do many miracles. And he'll say, I never knew you. See, see, deception can reign. When we see something miraculous, we validate it. We trust its source. We are far too impressed with things that we can't explain. And the thing is, God is just as much at work in the things I think I can't explain as he is in the stuff I can't explain. God's always acting. God is always God. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's presence is all around us. His work is all around us. And we're looking for something spectacular instead of looking to see what he's already actually doing. What is he doing in my spouse? What is he doing in my marriage? And we're looking to see something dramatic instead of paying attention to what he's actually doing. We're asking God to do stuff that can't be denied. God, do something that everybody will believe because, you know what, it can't be explained. But listen, church, that never works. Read Scripture. Read Scripture. Anytime God acts like that, the response of the people is not obedience. You know my favorite example of this? John 9, man born blind. He's blind. Jesus heals him. They confront him, wear him out, and if you're a Pentecostal, you can preach this passage. He says, hey, I don't know who the guy is. He just said, I just know I was blind, but now I can see. And we use that as a confession of faith when it's not a confession of faith. That's actually an insistence on confessing. He doesn't become a believer. He says, you go ask him. You go ask the man. I I don't know. He, He just healed my eyes. So here's the thing. Even if we got the miracles that we're asking for, do you think it would mean anything for people? No, it wouldn't. Read John 9. Jesus does the miracle. No one gets it. The man's parents disown him. The Pharisees split over it. They say, is this man godly because he did a miracle or is he ungodly because he did a miracle on the Sabbath? And the Bible says they split. And then the man doesn't follow Jesus. In other words, Jesus does a miracle and it doesn't produce faith. It only produces disunity and bickering and complaining and no one follows Jesus. Now, 
That tells me we don't need a bunch of supernatural miracle outbreaks. We need clarity about God's character. Because when we have clarity about God's character, we can see what he's doing and rejoice. We're not looking for the miraculous. We're seeing what God's doing. Now listen, if, if I'm sick, I want you to pray for me. If my kids are sick, I'll lay hands and pray for them. But listen, I don't think we should make too much about it if they are healed or if they aren't healed because God's active. He's working. He can be trusted. He's moving. He's not sometimes active and sometimes passive. He's always active. So how's God at work? If things go like I want them to do when I pray, how do I discern what God's doing? If things don't go like I want them to go when I pray, how do I discern what God is doing? I would tell you for the last eight months of our life, God has not done pretty much anything we've asked Him to do. Is that a, how's that confession of faith for you? So I have to ask myself, how do I discern what God's doing in that? Because He's not passive. He's active in some way. My fundamental trust is that God's ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. It's so far above me, because, but he has promised to be active. He's promised to never forsake me. He's promised that he wants to do good to me, so he's acting my, in my life. I just need eyes to see and ears to hear. That's what I need from God. So instead of asking God to do what I want to see, I should ask God to make it so I can see what he wants from me. Not what I want to see, but what he wants from me. Make it where I can see what you want it. Now, now, one more text, and I know i got to close. Numbers 23. This is one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament, if you want to turn there real quick. Numbers chapter 23. It's a story of Balaam. Balaam is a favorite story of mine. Balaam is a prophet, of course, who has a gift, but he wants to use it for his selfish advantage. And God just keeps getting in the way. I, one of the reasons I love this passage in Numbers 23 is because I love the way this passage represents the way God's grace is at work in our lives. He makes the path get narrow, and he makes the donkey talk to him. This is how God gets at you. Do you know how he does? He makes the walls start getting narrow and he makes donkeys talk to you. Now, I'm not trying to insult your Christian sensibilities, but listen to me. This is how God gets at us. He makes donkeys talk to us. That's how God saves us. He puts people in our life and who crowd us and make things tighter for us, and he puts donkeys in our life that talk back to us. That's how God gets at us. You're going your own way, and God just keeps getting in the way and keeps narrowing the walls. He keeps putting stubborn people in front of you, and they'll finally you come up against the friction enough to say, oh, maybe I'm experiencing friction because I'm going against the will of God in my life. That's how God gets at us. So the friction's there, and that's what happens to Balaam. Remember, Balaam is the prophet. He's going to speak a curse to Israel. And the donkey sees the angel of the Lord, but he don't see the angel of the Lord in the path. And God makes the, the path tighter and tighter and tighter until finally the donkey looks at him. He keeps walking that way. And the, and the donkey says, if I keep walking that way, you're going to get killed. You understand that, Balaam? His donkey tells him that. You're going to die if I keep walking that way. Well, he tries to get God on his side and God relents and God lets him go around and God lets him go and speak this curse against Israel. Now, watch this. Woo, this is so good. Numbers 23, he stands up and he's ready to curse Israel. Then Balaam uttered his oracle saying, Rise, Balak, Balak's the king of which he's serving. And here, listen to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a human being that he should lie or a mortal that he should change his mind. Has he promised and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? So notice this, we're familiar with the phrasing, God will not lie, but I'm going to tell you, not only does it say God will not lie, it says God will not change his mind, and what he promises, he fulfills. 
So Balaam is going to curse Israel, but when he speaks, he says, all that can come out of me is a blessing, and that blessing, notice, is what God is not. So here's what we have to see. We will never be able to see the character of God rightly until we clearly know what God is not. Blessing starts with God is not that. I'm still discerning what God is, dwelling place, but I know God is not that. I'm still trying, I'm young in my faith, and I don't know all that God is, but I tell you, God is not that. So I'm going to give you three God is nots. Three God is nots. God is number one, not like us, Balaam said. He's not a human. God is not sometimes active, sometimes passive, sometimes present, sometimes absent. That's not God. God does not come and go. God does not sometimes act and sometimes let other things happen. That is so basic to the way we imagine everything but Scripture again and again. And Christian tradition tells us that's not what God is like. God is not passive. He's always active. The question is how, not if. Listen to me, church. The God is always present. And again, I know what we mean when we Pentecostals talk about God showing up. But when we talk about God showing up, we do a deep disservice to people because God doesn't show up, y'all. God is present. God is our host. You heard me pray today earlier in this gathering. God, you are our host. You are the hospitable one welcoming us into your presence. We come to a place not to invite God to come in. Oh, we invite your presence, God. No, you don't. You come to a place to become aware of the God who's invited you into that place. God's not sometimes active, sometimes not. Sometimes passive, sometimes not. No, no, no. God is present. God is always present. We don't bring God. God is there. This is a major shift in the way we understand this. But look at John's gospel. At the end of John's gospel, remember that great story about Thomas? Remember Thomas? He comes in one day and he's deer hunting on a Sunday. I don't know, he's deer hunting. And Jesus comes in post-resurrection. He's not there. He's mad about it. Remember this? Well, a week later, Jesus comes up through the door and Thomas is there. And he says, peace be with you. He says, hey, Thomas, come here, buddy. I heard what you said last Sunday. I know you weren't around me, but come on, come on, come on, come on. I want you to put your hands right there and right there. And he puts his hands there and he falls on his knees. And what does he say? My Lord and my God. And what does Jesus say to him? Startling response. He said, Thomas, you believe because you have seen? More blessed are those who don't see and yet believe. Now that cuts against the grain of everything we've been taught to believe in the church. You and I right now are more blessed in this room today than Thomas was touching Jesus' scars in that room that day. Because for Thomas, Jesus was just another body in the room. Go back to Jesse DePlanis' vision. And, and last week on Sunday, he couldn't be in the same room as Jesus. Jesus was somewhere c- catching fish, and Thomas was in the house. But Jesus says for us today, he is the room we are in. He is with us in ways that are far more intimate than even Thomas was with Jesus in that room. He's not a human that's six foot that's out there. He is the room you and I are sitting in. How does scripture declare this? He says we are in him and he is in. What does Paul say? We are hidden in God in Christ. And when he appears what we shall appear. Even though what we already are. We are in Christ right now in a way far more intimate. And far more beautiful than anything Thomas had touching his scars. And what we're wanting is something less good than what God's offering. We're wanting to see the body. When he lives in us. We, we are like Israel wanting leeks and onions. Of another body in a room we can touch. When what he is giving us is his presence. That's far more intimate than that. He lives in us church. And we live in him. 
you can't get any more intimate. God is not another person in my life. God is my life. I used to tell youth ministry all the time, God's not first. He can't be first in your life. He's not another person in your life. He is your life. God is not one of the people I love. It's in God that I love everyone. God, he is, the, he, is, he is not one of the people I give attention to. I give attention to all people in God or I don't do it rightly. But I can only understand that about God if I don't think of God as another body in the room like Jesse Duplantis. I have to see that he is spirit and that he is in the very room and the very room that I live in. Because if he's just another body, then he is way out there in space somewhere and he's not here. But when you believe that the God you are praying to is actually millennia miles away, it changes the way you pray. You think he's up there like my son does. You think he's there. You think he's spatially that way. He's off in the distance, six foot somewhere out there next to the Father, but he's not here. But listen, when you know and you understand that you are praying only because God in you is praying and you and God are praying, then now you know he's already closer to you than you could ever imagine. It changes the way you preach. It changes the way you pray it changes the way you witness it changes the way you talk it changes everything because he is with me and in me he's not a being out there traveling back to us in the rapture no he's already opening in our eyes that day he's opening our eyes to what was already true today that we've been filled with the spirit and we've been filled with the life of God but we can only say that if we recognize God is not coming or going Like other people. He's present. Here's the second thing God is not. God is not controlling or controllable. God is not controlling or controllable. God is sovereign. I've preached this message here before. Control is the wrong way to think about it at all. I'm saying God is not in control, but I'm also saying God is not not in control. God is sovereign, and only God can be sovereign in a way that's neither controlling nor without control. Craig, what do you mean? See, if I'm in control of something, that means I'm bending that person's will to my will. When my nine-year-old son talks back to his mother, I go and grab and put my hands on him and I enforce my will on his will and I drag him out of the room. Because in our house, our wheels are competitively matched. So my wife has some power, probably more power than I have. My kids have some power and I have power. There's a resistance to that. It's a competitive relationship of power in our house. House. So getting my will done is I have to talk my kids into doing it or I have to lay the hammer down. To get my will done, I need to enforce my will on other people's will. But that's not how God is. He doesn't control. God never controls. He only creates. And only God can do that. But because God doesn't control, he can't be controlled. Listen, y'all. Look, I know we never think about it this way. God has no opposites. God has no equals. God has no opponents. God doesn't ever win because God is never in a battle. We are in battles, but God is never in a battle. God doesn't have to defeat anything because nothing can come against God with God's own power. He has all power. Listen, nothing can come against God. He has all power, not the most power. He's all powerful. So what that means is he's never had an enemy. He has no opposites. He has no one against him. No, God is God. And that's why he can call all things into being that are not or nothing. Only God can do that. And when you realize it, you realize now you are praying to a God. And when you're praying for God's will to be done, it's praying for the good of all things because what God does is good things for all people. See, if I get my will done, that means somebody else's will is not getting done. But that's not how God's works. Our wills are competitively related, but not God's. Only God could make it so that I freely love God without God forcing me to love Him or being controlled by my lack of faith. 
Only God can do that. And if you don't picture God that way, here's what I learned. You'll end up thinking in one of two ways. And this is almost the whole history of Calvinist-Arminian debates. I'm almost finished. You got this side of the room who are Arminians saying, God made us free, we choose, we choose God, and it turns into saying, I believe and therefore I'm saved. And the Calvinist is over here saying, no, 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 no. That's works righteousness. No, no, no. God elects some to be saved, which turns into God makes some people be saved and makes other people to be lost. And both are dead wrong. Why? Because they're both picturing God as another person in the room who's controlled or controlling, but that's not God. He's not enforcing his will on anyone. He is above. He is all-powerful. He's sovereign. He's not in control. He's sovereign. He's sovereign. And that's the basis of our witness. That's the basis of our worship. The basis of our prayer. And thirdly and finally, come on, Maddie. God is not needy. God is not needy. Look at me, church. I can't tell you how long it took for me to really believe this. Because Christianity, I inherited as a Christianity that, that only worked if you believed you were meeting a need of God. Every command from God and every promise from God was dictated by something God wanted for God. Like, like think about this. How many times have we said, God wants us to worship Him? God wants us to obey Him. And what we are communicating is that God is, everything God is doing, He's doing from a need. So He wants you to worship Him because He needs to be worshipped. He wants you to obey him because he needs to be obeyed. But a needy God can't show grace. A needy God can just manipulate you. Think about this. God is God. And if he created us just for us to meet his needs, that's the ultimate act of manipulation. If God created all things because he had a need, then that means we are not God's equals and we don't have the freedom to step away from God. We are pawns in his game. Church, I mean, listen to me. I exist because God willed it. I didn't choose to live, y'all. I didn't choose to be. I didn't choose to exist. I didn't choose to be who I am. I didn't choose my parents. I didn't choose my language. I didn't choose my culture. I didn't choose what city I'd be born in. I didn't choose my personality. I didn't choose my IQ. The most important things about me, I have nothing to do with. I don't choose what sicknesses come on me. I don't choose what suffering lies ahead of me. The most important things in my life, I have no control over at all. But if God created me because he had a need, that's the ultimate act of ungrace. But that's not what creation is. God tells us in his word, God has no need. Creation is sheer grace. He made sheerly because he loves us and he wants us to know love for one another. And he wants us to know joy in relationship with each other. And he wants us to know joy in relationship with him. That's the only rationale there is. It's all grace. God doesn't need my worship. God doesn't need my obedience. He doesn't need for me to trust him. He just wants me to know what his joy in my life is. He has no needs. He created me out of sheer grace. Grace. He made me so he could give me a gift that he couldn't give me if he didn't make me. He didn't make me to do work for him. He needs, we read the passage, he is not served by human hands. He has no needs. Oh yeah, I didn't say we don't work with him. Yeah, we work with him, but we don't work for him. And that way, we don't work for him. God doesn't have needs. 
And because God has needs, no needs, everything he does is grace. So that brings us to the Lord's table. Would you bring the Lord's table for us again? This meal is the constant reminder. Come on, team. That while you were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And Christ died for the ungodly precisely to make this point. God's saying, I don't need you to be godly for me. That's why I died for the ungodly. Does that sound weird? God doesn't need you to be godly for him? Can I be very vulnerable? When my my kids, as a parent, I sometimes feel myself getting frustrated with my kids because of the way they act. But if I'm really honest with myself, I'm upset because, not because of the way they act, but because of the way they they represent me. I need them to be good so that other people will think I'm a good parent. I need them to be good so that other people around me will think I'm doing a good job, but that's not love. God doesn't need us to be good because God wants to be seen as a good parent. God wants us to know His goodness out of sheer grace. Because goodness is joy, and goodness is peace, and goodness is life. He he warns us about sin not because He's trying to keep us from something we would enjoy. He's trying to keep us from something that will kill us. He doesn't want us dead. He wants us alive in Him. He wants us to experience His fullness. He wants us to experience... And every command in the Scripture is nothing but grace. Every promise of God is nothing but grace. He is a prodigal God who just keeps lavishing life on us. And this table is a reminder. If we... Listen. If we know that God is needy and we know how to meet His need, guess who's in power? If God's needy and we know how to meet his power, his need, we are in power. We are in control. And we can meet his need or not his need. This is why people get so angry when something goes wrong in their life. You know what they say? They say, I've been serving and paying tithes for 20 years. I've been faithful every Sunday. I love God. I read my Bible. I witness to my neighbors. And now my daughter has cancer. You know what they're saying when they tell you that? They're saying, I thought I knew what God needed from me. And I've been doing it for 20 years. So that when something went wrong in my life, I could go to God and say, I've been meeting your needs for 20 years, now payback. But God is not needy. And I want to say to you, you're not to be blamed for that. And I'm not. We're diseased, y'all. We're diseased. We're malformed. But when the word of the Lord comes to us, we have to be responsible. We have to stand up. God has no needs. And that's why we can trust everything he does. <laughs> everything he does is grace. It's love. It's sheer grace to us. So we have no need to not ever trust. It's nothing but love. It's nothing but grace. It's nothing but sheer gratuity. This is a God who is 
hospitably, radically hospitable, and he brought you to his house because he wants to give you himself. Imagine the communion table like this. Come to my table. I have something I want to give to you, and it's all joy, and it's all peace, and it's all goodness, and it's all beauty. I was reading the other day. We are joint heirs with Jesus, and I heard the Lord say that everything God meant for Jesus, he meant for us. Listen, there is nothing good or God means for Jesus that he doesn't mean for you. Let me say it another way. There is nothing God would give to Jesus that he wouldn't give to you. If you're joint heirs with Jesus, our life is sheer gratuity, grace, thanksgiving. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.